0: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. You have Ren and uh, Andrew Thurman, who recently joined uh, BlockWorks uh, as our lead data reporter, uh, building out the the data reporting side of the business. So, Andrew, pumped to have you not only on the podcast, but at BlockWorks, man. Yeah, no, good to be here. Yeah, pumped to have you here. And Ren, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you. Excited to be back. All right, guys, biggest news of the week by far was uh, was was Curve. Um Cur- curve uh, Curve got hacked this week, a couple, couple big pools impacted, had a lot of second-order impacts, both on the founders' positions, which have started to get hunted, as well as just on kind of the rest of DeFi. I would say there's other things happening in the industry right now, too, but the Curve hack was far and away the most important thing. And it's almost unfair of me to call it the Curve hack because it really wasn't almost on Curve, actually. It was on Viper. But maybe we can actually start... Really high level for for folks who don't know what Curve is. I know this might half the audience is going to be frustrated that we're digging into Curve. Like what is what is Curve here? But ren maybe you can kick it off with just like quick refresher on on what is Curve and why why is it so important to DeFi?
1: Yeah, sure. So Curve is a Dex. It's one of the largest Dexes in the DeFi ecosystem, along with Uniswap. It lives primarily on Ethereum mainnet. It was one of the first pioneers of VE tokenomics, where someone could lock up the native token and then they could basically use their voting power to direct emissions towards their liquidity pools for their tokens or their products. Basically, that solved a few problems for DeFi. Rather than emitting your own native token and diluting your own token holders, you're able to use Curve emissions because, for example, Curve has a much larger market cap. Emissions there are a lot more effective, and there was sort of like a whole ecosystem built out around Curve. You know, you have Curve, Convex, Urine, Staked Out. There was this thing that was known as the Curve Wars because, as we all know, liquidity is so important. And whoever had the largest treasury or war chest of Curve's tokens were able to direct the most emissions to the liquidity pools. And whoever had the most liquidity in their liquidity pools, more often than not, had the best product to offer to users. So, Curve. By far and large, has been a staple within the DeFi ecosystem for a good two, three years now, to be honest. A lot of protocols use them for emissions. A lot of protocols are deeply inter- interconnected into their ecosystem. And I think a lot of people consider it to be one of the DeFi blue chips, along with the likes of Uniswap, Synthetics, or DeFi 1.0, whatever term you want to use.
0: Anything that ran missed there?
2: Uh, I just add um, that was a very good intro. Um, they sort of have their niche with stable swaps in particular. Um, they're ideal. They're an ideal venue and arguably the most insor- important source of liquidity for you know swapping your stables like your USDC for your USDT. Um, this is also you know this is the developers protocol too. The these Michael Igorov, the founder. Uh, when I talk to actual geniuses, they're. He's the guy they all say, oh, he's the genius. And also, um, you know, this is technology that's been adopted uh, by state-level actors. There's a couple C- CBDC proposals that are going to use forked or modified versions of Curve. So this is, you know, in addition to being, I think, the second largest dex, systemically important for very particular types of swaps. And, um, you know, this was a really good team. This wasn't just some forked crappy project that got hacked here.
0: Yeah. So for folks who haven't used Curve, but might be familiar with Uniswap, if you go to Uniswap to trade kind of the long tail of tokens, you're going to Curve to swap stables. Um, and that's why it's really important to, to DeFi. Andrew, can you maybe walk us through what happened earlier this week? What what happened here? Start at the beginning.
2: Sure. So um, it was throughout the day on Sunday, uh, starting at around 8 a.m. Um, it was discovered that there was a flaw with um, a Viper compiler for um, uh, a select number of curve pools that use this p- compiler, um, this version of the compiler. Uh, what this means in practicality is that uh, um, a particular curve pool JPEG's uh, NFT lending profile, uh, PETH slash ETH pool, where you could swap this um, NFT loan back derivative for Ether, um, that was exploited for about 11 million uh, in peth and DETH. Um, initially, uh, uh, sort of funnily enough, um, in a sense deleted tweet, Curve seemed to imply that this was a flaw with the JPEG protocol. And, um, a few minutes later, it came out that it was actually, um, these curve, uh, certain select curve pools that were at risk. Uh, what happened throughout the rest of the day was a foot race, I think is the best way to call it. Um, there were black hat hackers, What appears to be multiple different ones. Usually, in an exploit, there's just one guy who found a flaw and went after it. Um, But as the knowledge about this particular exploit and attack vector uh, spread, multiple people uh, decided to, uh, you know, sort of try out uh, stealing some money from these curve pools. Uh, Simultaneously, to all of these black hat hackers figuring out that there was this exploit uh, um, underway and one that was possible. Uh, white hack teams, uh, you know, various war rooms from around the community. They were attempting to execute um, uh, these, um, you know, sort of bailout transactions. They would drain these vulnerable pools before the black hats could, uh, thus saving the user funds. Um, and finally, there was a very, very interesting third party who was involved in the race, uh, which was a couple of generalized front runners, which are a type of MEV searcher. That um, sees profitable transactions and steps in to execute them themselves. Um, and there's pretty good evidence that uh, you know somebody might have saved a great, great deal of funds, a huge amount of ether, um, while they were sleeping because their bot just executed these transactions for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, throughout the day Sunday, I think it was a total of four affected pools and eight different transactions. Um, some of them white hat, some of them black hat. Ultimately, drained about seventy million in funds from these pools. Uh, fifty of fifty million of which um, we now believe, roughly fifty million, was uh, black hat
0: exploiters who managed to get away with the money. Great summary. What kind of attack was this?
1: How did how did this actually happen? I can uh, touch on this. So basically, what happened is a re agency attack. A re agency attack is. When a function makes an external call to another untrusted function, then this untrusted function or contract basically makes a recursive call back to the original function in an attempt to drain funds. Where things kind of go wrong during a re entrancy attack is when the original contract fails to update its state before sending funds. So in layman's terms, I'm able to withdraw, say, one ETH that I deposited, but the contract does not update my balance to minus one ETH. And I'm able to just continuously call that withdrawal function again and again until I withdraw that entire pool. Specifically for this curve exploit, what happened was the code itself was fine. It was written in Viper. Viper is like a Python-like programming language for EVM chains, but the compiler basically has a compiler code. And within that, there was something that caused the reentrancy guard to fail. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't have a technical background, but the code you write is fine, but basically when you make it productive grade, compile it into a smart contract, then things go out of whack. Um, and so actually this bug has been around for quite some time. You know, This bug was first discovered in, or was first pushed to Viper in July, 2021. It was subsequently fixed in August, 2021 in another update to Viper. But because Curve did not upgrade, smart contracts they compounded once in 2021 and it's been that same smart contract ever since there's been that potential exploit vector there for a good two years now to be honest
0: yeah it's uh it's it's kind of wild to see this re-entrancy attack because i think this was the same attack that was used in the the DAO hack back in 20 whenever that was 2016 i think they like the original DAO that ended up forking Ethereum and, uh, and do Ethereum Classic as well. So it's kind of crazy to see this. So what were the pools that were impacted here, Ren? Or, or or Andrew, whoever wants to take that.
2: Sure, I can discuss that one. So it was a lot of um, Ether and Ether derivative pools. And then one uh, structurally important uh, curve, CRV, the governance token for the curve protocol, Ether pool. So there's the JPEG PETH pool the metronome, um, MS ETH, ETH pool, the Alchemix pool, arguably the, the hardest hit, um, AL ETH and Ether, and then uh, Curve Ether. So the only one that wasn't, uh, the only pool that wasn't for swapping between Ether and what was supposed to be a like asset.
0: Why is the, I would say one of those pools is more important than the other. Um, CRV ETH, let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. So why is that such an important pool?
1: So this is going to be a whole discussion later, <laughs> but basically Curve with that pool on Curve is the main on-chain liquidity source for Curve, the token, which means anyone wanting to swap in and out of Curve and Eve has to be routed through that pool if you want like any semblance of liquidity. If I'm not wrong, I think around like 20 million or strain from that pool. Um, so in, in and of itself, like sure, it doesn't really that much, but there's a few important factors here. First is that, If all of the curve and Eve is drained out of that pool, the curve token price goes down by a lot, at least on-chain. Maybe it doesn't go down that much on centralized exchanges. But if I'm not wrong, on that Sunday, the curve price for that pool reached something like 15 cents while the price was still like 60 or 55 cents on a centralized exchange. And so a lot of protocols that depend on it for emissions, like your emissions basically de facto just went down by like 75% from dollar value perspective. And also with those emissions, whoever receives those emissions can like sell those emissions for actual like US dollars or, or like WEF. Um, the second and more important thing is that there is a lot of Curve Fetch Desk collateral lending uh, protocols by Curve's founder, Michael Agaroff. Um, and basically, if you want to liquidate that, you have to go through that liquidity pool on chain at least, um, and if that liquidity doesn't exist anymore then you can't really liquidate someone's loan and when you can't liquidate someone's loan as a collateral value goes down then you kind of get like a big financial crisis.
0: Hmm. So here's my understanding of how this went down and I'm going to try to try to draw an analogy to non-crypto land to almost uh, to try to make this more understandable basically so the curve eth pool or weth pool my understanding of how this happened is there were two different attacks one of them was the 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 first one I think was the exploiter Opened a 10,000 WETH flash loan from Balancer, unwrapped it to ETH. They then provided 400 ETH as liquidity to the Curve, uh, to the CRV ETH pool. Received like roughly 10,000 CRV ETH LP tokens. Swapped 500 ETH for like a million CRV. Withdrew that CRV and ETH from the pool. Burned some of the tokens. Withdrew the CRV. Burned more tokens. Swapped CRV for ETH and then repeated the process until basically the CRV had been drained from the pool. My almost like dumbed down version of like this in non-crypto terms and like what a re-entrancy attack is, I'm, I'm going to try this and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, but imagine imagine you have a bank, right? And you have a, cu- a customer, let's call him Bob, walks up to the bank teller, uh, asked to withdraw the money. So the bank teller first hands out the money and then records the withdrawal in the bank's ledger, which reduces Bob's balance. But then suppose that there's this like, mischievous person that also walks in the bank let's call them sally right and sally wants to try to exploit this system so sally walks up to the teller requests a withdrawal teller hands over the money but before the teller can record the withdrawal sally interrupts like distracts them asks a question or comments or something and the teller you know starts talking to sally forgets to record the withdrawal so while the teller is distracted uh uh sally then asks for another withdrawal The teller forgets, kind of like almost doesn't realize what happens, forgets what happens because the first draw hasn't been recorded in the ledger, hands over more money to Sally. And the process repeats, allowing Sally to withdraw far more money than she actually has in her account. Uh, And and here the bank would be the smart contract. Sally is the malicious attacker. And the teller's process of giving out the money before recording the transaction is kind of like the vulnerable contract code, which sends funds before updating its state. Fair analogy, not a fair analogy. Andrew, what do you think?
2: I'm trying to look it up. It's this classic uh, old timey movie, but uh, I think th- that's a good breakdown. Um, maybe mm-hmm. a simpler one would be uh, it's it's the scam artist who ends up adopting a little girl and he teaches her how to do this funny trick that you can do with certain people when they're giving you change where you just keep swapping money back and forth and they get confused and end up giving you way too much. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, it's, it's hard to analogize because it's so complex, but no, that's, that's a good swing.
0: What do you think,
1: right? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good explanation too.
0: I, th- I mean, I think in crypto terms too, it's like, uh, this is, uh, I, I read this summary somewhere and I wrote it down, but I, I forget where I pulled this from. So sorry for not citing it, but the, um, I'll just read it. The reentrancy occurred between the remove liquidity and add liquidity actions. A pool depositor should ordinarily be entitled to pool tokens equal to the product of the total pool token supply and the fraction of the depositor supplied liquidity. However, due to the reentrancy bug, the the allotted pool tokens were calculated with the pre-burn balances, which then allows the exploit to kind of infinite mint pool tokens to create this fraudulent claim on the entire contents of the pool. So... Um, Andrew, any other thoughts on like, Ren, I I know Ren just commented this, but any other thoughts on like why the CRV ETH pool is so important or just like how this happened or details on this?
2: Yeah. CRV ETH doesn't have a ton of, uh, on-chain liquidity. Um, and that curve ETH pool was arguably the largest one, you know, um, $10 $12 10 million 12 million or so of ether. And so if these loan positions which we'll talk about in a little bit ever did uh, get liquidated, that was really where a lot of people expected to be able to do it and do it safely. Um, and so suddenly, you know, these DeFi protocols which had already started making noise about uh, Curve founder Michael Igorov's positions, um, you know, there was uh, some talk in the Aave governance forums even just a few months ago. Um, discussing how they might pose a little bit of risk. They had simply gotten too large and the collateral backing didn't have enough liquidity. If there ever had to be a liquidation, it all looked much, much worse after that uh, curve ETH pool went down.
0: Yeah. Why is this? um, All right. So this wasn't actually curve that got hacked. It it, It was a bug in Viper. Is that a fair thing to say?
1: I think Curve was still the end target of what got hacked, but Viper was sort of like the means of how they got attacked. I think that's how I would put it.
2: I think that like language diversity in Ethereum is a good thing. We shouldn't write everything in in solidity. Um, And Viper is this sort of famously underfunded project that a lot of really crunchy developers like to use. Um, and so it's a little heartbreaking that they're, they've sort of become the scapegoat for this. Um, and it's also worth noting that, um, Curve is a really important patron of the language. They, um, funded it with some Gitcoin grants and payments out of, um, governance. Uh, and I believe, uh, I saw somebody on Twitter, I didn't verify this myself, but the person who approved the, um, uh, uh, the commit, the push to that the uh, reentrancy attack actually used was in fact a curve developer. They are um, maintainers of the language, and so it's it's really tough to say it's one team and not another team. And I understand the instinct to do that, but um, you know these these things are structures that are built on top of each other, right? And so you you just assume that uh, somebody smarter than you has done the legwork to make sure that everything is good with the compiler. And you know who is really at fault at the end of the day is, I think, a much more complicated question. Um, but ultimately, I it's it. Do you call it a flaw in Curve or do you call it a flaw in Viper? It's it's. Oh, it's I, t- I
0: guess the I guess the important question is like not the semantics, right? The important question is if this was a an issue with Curve, then the 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 um the problem that you could. You would think that the problem is siloed to curve. But if this is a problem with Viper, which is what a lot of folks use, then my immediate – I know everyone's focus is on uh, Michael's CRV uh, position and the potential CRV, uh, you know, his potential liquidations. But I feel like that is the wrong place to focus. I feel like the the real focus is on, like, you know, if everyone – I'm sure the bug has already been fixed in Viper. I'm sure that's, like, not a big deal. But if everyone's using the same smart contracting – language here and and uh compiler with viper and stuff like that then like i don't know my thought goes to other protocols is this a concern of you guys or not really
1: i i definitely think so i think it's more of a viper problem but i want to go one step further actually um after this exploit happened people started pointing out that okay we all know solidity is probably the most used smart contract programming language within the evm ecosystem um and solidity also has the ability for devs to sort of like auto do these optimizations when they're compiling their code. And actually in a recent trial of its audit report for like a new lending protocol called Ajna Finance, the audit report basically told us that there has been several optimization bugs with Solidity's optional compiler optimization. And you know, if you if you're a dev, chances are this is a box you check because you wanna like optimize your smart contract. You trust Solidity. But over the years, starting all the way from late 2018, there's been like a significant number of high severity bugs in that Solidity compounder. So for all we mm-hmm. know, there's like one super big bug in a Solidity optimizer doing compound that a lot of smart contracts are vulnerable to. It's just, you know, like sometimes it's a bit of luck and no one knows what's out there. And I think that's also a problem with crypto, right? Like it's really, really, really hard to write perfect code. Like even Apple or like the best big tech companies in the world with the most developed like the software engineering environments, do you see like a zero day exploit pop up like every other month, to be honest? And like sure they patch it pretty soon, but still like the fact that a zero day exploit can exist for Apple, like it's pretty scary. And I think the same probably is the case for uh, like any smart contract programming language.
0: Hey, everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is a big conference that BlockWorks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year, it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app chain thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right. Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team. You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket. You get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to Permissionless, hit me up, let me know, shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. Yeah, this just spooked me because the Curve team is, I think Andrew was saying this earlier, like is one of the best teams in the world at writing new code and building unique stuff in DeFi. So, you know, if they can be vulnerable to this, I don't know, it kind of spooks me.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's another important thing that uh, we should talk about. There's been a fair bit of community discussion, discussed on Sunday morning um, when the first I think Alchemix was the first food that got exploited. Um, Peck Shield, if I'm not wrong, like tweeted yeah. out uh, saying, like, hey, uh, at uh, Alchemix, you should probably check this transaction. Oh but no, it was, it was uh,
0: JPEG, Oh, right? JPEG, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, they basically a- added the JPEG's pro- JPEG protocol on Twitter saying, hey, you should check out this transaction. And th- this is something they do pretty often. When there's a hack going, they'll tag the team on a tweet and they'll put like a screenshot of the transaction showing there's like, a large amount of funds um, leaving a protocol. I think on the day there wasn't so much attention paid to it, but in the past few days I've seen a lot of discussion on Twitter, you know, did Peck shield or I think Bloxec also posted about the exploit or like the vulnerability. Should they have posted about that exploit on Twitter before like getting in touch with like white hat hackers or curve itself? I, I think there's like a few sides to what happened. Apparently they tried contacting the curve team, but they didn't get a response from them, and so they had to resort to Twitter, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But there is like a certain moral discussion to have. What is the best avenue, avenue to let someone know of like an ongoing exploit? Should crypto have sort of like centralized war rooms at like a group of white hat hackers that are always ready on standby to respond to like an exploit? And yeah, sort of like who's really to blame Would the exploit or the magnitude of the exploit have been so large had they not posted that on Twitter? Because my gut feeling is that hackers, like the original hackers themselves, not like generalized fund running MEV bots. Those people are fairly unsophisticated. I want to say sometimes it's just they find like an interesting quirk in the protocol. And you know, half the time you read about you read about hackers, like they, they haven't figured out how to launder the money, like the Euler finance, like that guy had zero plan with what to do with the <laughs> funds. Um, and so perhaps he didn't have a idea or other people didn't have this idea of using this re um attack vector, but it's only cause BoxSec or Pachy or whoever posted about it on Twitter, then they were made aware of it, and that sort of exacerbated mm. the effects of the exploit.
0: Can't have your cake and eat it too. Like I don't think you can have a fully transparent industry where everything is on chain and um and not have this stuff happen, right? And so, well, yeah. I mean,
2: I I'm sympathetic to that to the extent that a sufficiently sophisticated black hat could have looked at these exploit transactions and sort of reverse engineered how it came about. Um, but I think yesterday was a really unique situation and that there was this foot race underway, um, between the white hats and the black hats. Yeah. And, um, you know, Richard Chen over at Ottersec wrote a great blog post about these two failed white hat transactions that didn't work because they were, um, They were, uh, uh, they didn't do it in time by a matter of minutes, by a matter of seconds. Like, Mm. you know, the, the exploits, the Black Hats beat them by a few blocks. Um, And so, and I think in a situation like that, um, you know, Peck Shield sort of laying out and later on the day BlockSec doing the same, laying out exactly how to execute these Mm. malicious transactions. I, I... I mean, it rises above a moral question. It might open them up to legal liability. I truly ah, I don't see. know.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. You know, that's that it, it was a unique situation. And usually Peck's does, like, I think of them as a public good when they tweet out, you know, hey, there's an exploit underway. Um, but when there was still vulnerability and there were people, you know, engaged in this race against time to try and save user funds, it, that's a dicey situation.
0: Yeah. Maybe before getting into the, uh, like how much got hacked. I, I, won't, I was going to shift uh, into Michael's position liquidations, but maybe before that we can talk about these MEV um, bots and kind of this battle between there. So there are three groups that got money out of this. There are the black hat hacker. They're, they're the hackers, right? The, the, the bad guys, basically. Then there are the white hat hackers um, who are hacking it, but kind of siphoning off money into these safe pools with the aim to keep it safe over here and then send it back. And then there are the MEV bots which adds a really interesting third party here. So Andrew, can you walk us through these three groups, but maybe focus on the MEV bots? Cause that's this like new group that isn't you. There's usually two groups here, white hat and black hat. And there's now, we now have a third third party here. Uh, I think it was Coffee Babe was the biggest.
2: Was yeah, the biggest my, my
0: new personal hero, Coffee Babe. Baby. Yeah, truly. So yeah, <laughs> uh, give us some details on these MEV bots. Um, Yeah,
2: how to explain it in layman's terms. So, I think to sort of add to your, um, you know, somebody's sort of playing a trick on the bank teller uh, scenario, imagine that they successfully do that. But right as they're walking out of the bank, somebody walks up and takes the money from them instead. And they're the ones who actually leave the bank with the money in hand. Um, So, uh, there's a type of MEV searcher, usually MEV bots. Nine times out of 10, they're just arbitrageurs. They identify price discrepancies between different trading venues, and they execute these incredibly high-efficiency, incredibly quick trades in order to make little slivers of profit. There are also these types of MEV searchers known as generalized front runners, where they will identify profitable transactions and uh, seek to execute them before the person who's actually identified them. Um, coffeebabe.eth is um, – a really well-known MEV uh, bought an address, um, you know, throughout the day yesterday. Uh, in addition to executing uh, two different exploit transactions that somebody else had designed, they simply used uh, generalized front running to identify it in the mempool and execute that transaction before the other people could. Um, they were they were doing meme coin trades all day. This address, like in addition to (laughs) rescuing these funds, was trading like Harry Potter, Obama, Sonic, Inu um, for fractions of a cent. It's just an incredibly well-designed bot. And it's worth mentioning that this address had done this in the past. There was a sushi exploit that they front ran and ended up returning the funds. So later in the day when this person woke up and realized they had about 4,000 ETH more than they should in this bot, um, (laughs) you know, can you imagine waking up and figuring that out, um, and, uh, got in touch with the affected teams. And from what I understand, um, has returned almost all of it. They had a little bit of MP ETH and the, uh, they also, um, front ran a second exploit of the curve ETH pool that got 2,800 ETH, um, and I believe they've returned all of it. There might still be a little bit more MP ETH that they're holding, but um, this is somebody who's done this in the past. And uh, like, if if anyone ever kidnaps me, just send like a single incredibly cracked Slavic MEV guy after
0: that me. Like, I really? th- that's the person I want in my <laughs> yeah. corner. Like, they're they're just an incredible force. It was it was wild watching this in real time. I mean, you're watching like a hacker like you're you're watching in real time as a hacker like identifies a vulnerability tries to steal i think the one i was watching was like it was worth like five million bucks and then uh you know coffee babe basically just you know scanned it saw the trade bid some higher gas and replicated the transaction outbid them secured the funds and yeah they're returning the stolen ETH to curve so it's awesome to see i love it i think it's exciting (laughs) um anything else on the white hat Uh black hat mev
1: I want to say the most interesting angle for like a lot of these hacks, actually, not just the curve hack, is the legal angle. Like if if I'm running a generalized frontrunner bot, uh, and I don't really have control over the bot, it's just like looking at transactions. Uh, but then I'm copying a malicious transaction that's exploited some protocol. Am I on the hook for this? Um, and then. Similarly, like across the whole MEV supply chain, you know, from circus to builders to proposers, like all of them get some proceeds for like bids that are placed throughout the way. If a hacker exploited like a thousand ETH and he bid 50 ETH to get his uh, bundle like included, do I have to give that 50 ETH that I want as a proposer back? Uh, I think we've seen this play out in the past. uh, I think it was Sushi she swapped, like for example, one of the Lido validators got a, a hefty chunk of 70 eve from that Sushi exploit, and Sushi so was like begging for it back. And mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, like, is Lido really, or is the proposer the one really on the hook here, or should it be on the hacker to return the full amount of original sums, even though he used 5% of that, say, to pay the proposer to get his bundle included? I just think it's like a really interesting great area that's going to happen again in the game for the foreseeable
0: yeah. future yeah i agree with you all right let's shift focus a little bit um so the sell pressure. all right so as this happened uh the price of curve so there's curve the protocol and then there's crv the token as this was happening uh uh you started seeing a bunch of sell pressure on crv which then shifted attention to uh michael um the founder of uh founder of curve crv position turns out he had uh he had levered up basically his crv position i think he What was the total amount of loans it was like 100 million or 80 million or something uh
2: prior prior to the hack and he almost immediately started adjusting his positions and trying to pay down some of it he had about uh if i can recall correctly 115 million in outstanding stablecoin loans
0: okay so he had basically backed uh he basically put like 400 million of crv i think and taken that as collateral uh, these are rough numbers. I'm sure I'm getting them a little bit wrong, but and had taken out a you know 100 115 million dollar loan and had used uh, that capital to go buy some <laughs> some pretty nice mansions in I think Australia. So the sell pressure on CRV kind of shifted attention to Michael's CRV position and kind of the potential of of not only his liquidations but then if he gets liquidated, kind of what the cascading liquidations in DeFi and specifically on Frax and Ave would look like. Can one of you guys walk us through? Um, just like almost this self-perpetuating cycle of sell-offs and people like what it means to almost like target this kind of vulnerable CRV position and what you guys were watching for here.
1: Yeah, so basically Michael or Mitch had a number of loan positions on five different lending protocols it includes Ave, Faxland, Abracadabra, and a few other slightly smaller ones. I think they were a silo and inverse. Um, Basically, on all of them, he pledged varying amounts of curve collateral. Um, and then he brought, I think, mostly USDT or some other stable coins against it. And when you borrow on a DeFi lending protocol, your loan has to stay above a certain liquidation ratio because everything in DeFi has to be over collateralized. We haven't really figured out uh, under collateralized lending yet. So as the value of curve went down, then people started really, really getting worried about potential liquidations from these lending protocols. And what happens during a liquidation is basically someone else comes back and pays back a portion of the debt. It's not always 100% of the debt. It could be 50% of the debt first. And then he'll assume a certain percentage of the collateral. And in an ideal world, he'll sell the collateral for a stable to basically make like a raw atomic profit within one bundle of transactions. The problem is that you have to sell Curve in order to sort of get back to like a U.S. dollar denominated profit. And that's basically where things start going wrong, because we talked about how the Curve and Weft on Curve itself was exploited for $20 million worth of liquidity. So if you wanted to liquidate however much Curve that Mitch had pledged across DeFi, it's just not really possible. If you looked at the stats after the Curve was exploited, a $1 million curve sell had around 85% slippage. A $100 million curve sell had around 99.15% slippage. So some ridiculous number. Right. Uh, I think like a 300 million curve cell is just straight up impossible. And for these liquidations to work effectively, the slippage can't be like 85 or 95% because the liquidator incentives is only say like 5% for ave. And so ideally your slippage needs to be a lot less than that if you want to incentivize anyone to liquidate. And it is sort of like a game theory problem in some sense, because if one protocol liquidates first, then whoever liquidates after him gets a worse execution price when trying to sell his curve. And if protocols aren't able to liquidate his debt at a good enough price, then what you end up is bad debt. Basically the protocol has lost money on a dollar basis and they have to assume that debt themselves and different protocols handle this differently. They have insurance funds, but given the amount of Mitch's loans, chances are they would have had to dig into both their insurance fund. And more often than not, they would print their native token in order to sell that off to cover whatever bad debt they have. It's just not a good position to be in.
0: Andrew, what were you looking for here? As you were looking at like kind of cascading liquidations, you were looking at Aave, you were looking at Frax, you were looking at maybe like the interest rate kind of exponentially increasing in the Frax pool. Like, what did you, what did you focus in on?
2: Well, yeah, there was a point I think you mentioned this earlier where his position was being actively hunted, right. um, and it had been uh, sort of attacked in the past. Um, Avraham Eisenberg uh, of Mango Markets Exploit Fame um, had previously attempted to um, uh, uh, go after this position by taking out a massive curve short position on Aave. He ended up losing, I believe, um, $10 million. But during the course of the attack, uh, Aave itself was left with about $1.6 million in bad debt as well. Um, and so this this is like a position that DeFi nerds were aware of. It's arguably one of the most closely watched in all of DeFi. Maybe there's people keeping like, closer eyes on what Justin Sun's up to. But this was a well-known account with this massive position. And opportunistic traders had already gone after it in the past, and I think very much did here as well. Um, the uh, Frax stablecoin pool um, was uh, topped out. And the way Frax's market works is um, if it is overutilized, the interest rate um, increases uh, at some absurd point. Level doubling uh, every couple of hours um, until uh, uh, either there are more depositors or until people pay back their debt. Um, arguably, a clever design because you know it. The protocol forced um, uh, Michael Igurov to um, pay down a significant portion of his debt; otherwise, he would have been liquidated, and it could have um, led to some nasty uh, problems. Um, what I'm keeping an eye on, sort of, as the dust is settled. Um, We'll talk about some of these OTC deals that Igorov uh, executed in order to pay down a lot of these positions. But um, there are a few of these lending marketplaces now that are taking what I think are pretty extraordinary measures um, to sort of defend themselves and prioritize themselves relative to some of these other outlets. Um, Abracadabra is one that attempted to pass a governance proposal earlier today that would have increased the uh, interest rate on um uh the curve markets by 200%. This is obviously targeting a single user and so I think you start to get into um questions about is this like a, the right ethical thing um you know is it Michael's fault for taking out a loan on a protocol where governance had the power to do this? You know, to what who is in the right in these kind of extraordinary situations and how do you handle the game theory aspect of it? Um, when it's, it's a lot of curve to liquidate and, uh, it's unclear that, uh, all of these protocols would be able to do it safely.
1: I think this, the slightly more contentious point of that abracadabra governance proposal was that not only were they going to jack up interest to 200% and the original proposal, a updated one, I think only is proposing a 130%, but. That interest would be applied directly to the collateral itself. It's not interest that's accruing on the collateral. Basically, what this means uh, is that a centralized multi-sig run by the Abracadabra team is saying, okay, chances are you're not paying this back right now. To protect ourselves, we are going to slowly c- claw back your curve collateral, which like. It's not a liquidation. It's like a soft and slow and gradual liquidation. And then Abracadabra is going to slowly 12 sell that over the course of, for example, six months. I think that was a point of contention on top of the fact that they're kind of rugging or hunting his position by setting the interest to 200%. On top of that, they're just saying, hey, you know, like we don't care. We're going through like centralized multi sig We're going to slowly claw back your collateral without like, officially liquidating
0: are they hunting his I don't know if I'd categorize that as hunting his position by Abercrombie. Like I, this just I'd feels say like
1: them protecting themselves, I want to say forcing him to farming. repay,
0: yeah, repay yeah. it, knowing that he has to repay there's a bunch of people he has to repay and they want to get repaid first. Right. Yeah. Um hmm, that's interesting. So the like summary of like his position. Um, so if he was gonna get let me Tell me if I got this right. If he was gonna get liquidated by Fraxland, all of his other debt positions were gonna get liquidated too, which would have meant that like there would be a couple protocols that would probably die due to bad debt, like like MIM or like inverse finance and things like that. And then Ave was gonna get stuck with a bunch of bad debt that they would have had to sell off in the open market. Is that the like is that kind of the second order impact of of his position there? Or do you think it goes deeper than that? I I think that that's
2: a fair – I mean, it's hard to guess what would have happened, right? Uh, One thing that he does is he tends to keep his positions all at roughly the same health level. Um, And so, I think the worst possible thing that could have happened was liquidation hit at every protocol at the same time. Um, That would have been really ugly. But um, Aave's safety module, which is effectively their insurance backstop fund – They've got about ninety five million in liquidity, um, and they would have had to sell Ave to um uh, uh, cover that bad debt, but they hypothetically had the liquidity waiting there
0: um and that didn't, would
2: have been really nasty It would have been it?
0: what's that? didn't they just propose to do that didn't uh didn't Zeller over at Ave propose to start buying it back or are they not doing that um they they, did they might
1: did that this morning. Or uh, at least, like a governance proposal was put up very, very recently to acquire some of the curve. Use that for their own native stablecoin goal. Hmm.
2: Clever, but yeah, yeah, no. Um, I, I think now everybody's taking these sort of half measures. But it's really curious to think about what would have happened if it had all hit at once. Um, I think Ave, where the majority of the loan outstanding loan is, I think he still has about fifty eight million. And stables uh, taken out from there, Um, they would have hypothetically been able to handle it, but only if they were the only ones getting liquidated. If everybody got liquidated at the same time and the price of Curve went to zero, it would have gotten really, really ugly. Um, And it's tough to know exactly what that would have looked like, but um, it could have been much, much worse than it currently is, is all I'll say.
0: Yeah. It looks like I'm looking at Curve right now. It looks like money's starting to flood back into Curve a little bit. Um, do you
1: guys think we've seen the is the worst of it behind us? Basically, I think so. If you look at the numbers curves, TVL dropped fifty percent in one day from I think three point one billion to one point five billion. Uh, since slowly rebounded to two point one billion, I would say without the OTC deals, that probably like the contagion would still be spreading. But I think the OTC deals has sort of calmed the storm a little bit for now.
2: And it is important to note too that michael igorov is a tremendously well capitalized individual he's got a vesting schedule where like 140,000 curve tokens unlock to him every single day and so um Are you serious long- yes <laughs> that's on his D-Bank profile you can look that up and that's in, the, in addition to the curve rewards that like he's a prolific defi user he's earning farming rewards every day too and so like the longer this goes on Um, the healthier his positions start to look just by virtue of how he's arranged his portfolio.
0: Wow, that's nuts. I didn't realize that. We'll put a link to his D-Bank profile. I'm looking at it right here. Um, All right, tell uh, tell us about these OTC deals. So if he had started dumping into the market, that obviously would have been really bad for the market, and that would have probably exacerbated this. So he started doing these OTC deals that looked like kind of three to six month lockups at a price of 40 bucks with a call option, um, if, uh, that can be, uh, in a three to six month lockup that can be sold if the price reaches 80 cents, something along those lines, but can one of you guys walk us through the details of these OTC deals?
1: Sure. Um, so it, it wasn't exactly Michael selling on the open market because all of his curve is locked up as collateral. So you can't sell something that's locked up as collateral because removing it as collateral would immediately decrease the health of your loan. So what actually happened was that he agreed to sell Curve to certain parties. I think I'll let Andrew dive into all of the parties that he sold um, OTC to, but he agreed to sell Curve to a lot of these parties. And what these parties did first was that they first transferred him USDT or other stable coins. He repaid his debt. And then after repaying a portion of his debt, he took out his, some of his Curve collateral. And gave it to whoever bought these curve tokens because doing it like the other way, in like how a sale should be done, like just wouldn't work for him given that his positions on the lending protocols existed. And He made like a bunch of OTC deals to some good, some bad people, just different ways of looking at his outlet. And we dive into that <laughs> a little bit more. But
0: who oh, there? Was DWF Labs, it was uh Justin Sun, DCF God, uh, Maki. Um, Yeah, Jeffrey
2: Huang. Um, uh, uh, Michael Patron, aka Zero X Sifu, who was involved in the collapse. Well, he was a former executive at Quadriga CX, one of the largest uh, sort of uh, old school exchange scams. Um, You know, this this is a lot of uh, uh, very well-known individuals who have a sometimes spotty reputation. um, And you have to wonder, you know, these are the buyers of last resort you know uh, uh the prolific market maker and otc desk winnermute the founder Evgeny gavoy um he said that uh because of the people who were involved in these deals they specifically declined to onboard uh michael igorov as a counterparty um and you know uh igorov is also being sued by a trio of pretty well known um american venture capital firms um, and so he – I can imagine I, – I don't know what was happening in the course of these conversations, but it's not hard to imagine a world in which um, he didn't have a lot of willing buyers. And so he turns to these people who are very well capitalized but don't always have the greatest reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really interesting deal terms too. He was selling Curve for about 40 cents per token, uh, which was significant haircut to the market price about – a 33 uh, percent gulf there um and additionally uh there is an option for the buyers to sell uh if the price of curve ever eclipses 80 cents um hmm. and that's now like lots and lots of curve that's
0: circulating that could it potentially feels like michael's basically <laughs> just trying to extend this out as long as possible because of those the unlock schedule right the curve unlocks schedule like over the next uh next year 400 million curve gets unlocked 200 million goes to the core team 100 million goes to the to to mitch right so it feels like he's basically just like scrambling. i mean this is a really good deal for them they get to buy at this what did you say it was 33 percent discount and then they can i mean they can just short on perps to cover the risk so it's kind of a yeah. no-brainer deal for them it seems like
2: yeah i mean i if they had offered it to me i would have taken it um, <laughs> <laughs> Stepped up with your fifty
0: million. He's that's right. That's bag, right. The Back
2: then, <laughs> yeah. uh, a De- DeFi reporter stepping in to save all of DeFi. Um, no, I, I I think that uh, the the other thing that could lead to some really interesting situations too is that these were handshake deals. These vesting schedules are not enforced by a smart contract. Mm. Um, from what I understand, a few people, including Maki, interestingly enough, um, have sort of deposited them into. Um, uh, uh have since sort of locked them take it of their own volition but uh some of the stuff that was sold to OTC was sent to Binance and there's no way to have any transparency on whether or not those were sold. And so it it seems like in addition to these deals being made with people who, you know, aren't your ideal counterparty necessarily, um they, they it just really feels like it was done uh somebody making deals with with their back to the wall a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Usually what happens in these situations, I feel like, like we saw it when, you know, when all the, when everything was kind of collapsing, whether it was with Terra or whether it was with, you know, Celsius or BlockFi or, you know, FTX stuff is you kind of have these come in waves, right? It's like all of crypto Twitter's attention is on this for like three or four days. I have a feeling in the next like two or three weeks, things will quiet down, but I also have a feeling this is not the last we've heard of this.
2: Yeah. The positions are all healthier now. Um, you you'd need like the price of Curve to go down to like 28, 27 cents or something like that for, for these right. to come under fire again. But yeah, I mean, these it's this position has been hunted in the
0: past. It's been hunted in the last week.
2: Uh, there's no reason to think that it won't happen again.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anything else, guys, that you think is interesting or important to talk about on Curve?
1: I, I think a good question to ask here is that how did these lending protocols end up in this position? Because mm. obviously your blockchain is an open database. You can pretty openly see how much liquidity there is if you want to liquidate a certain like specific collateral type. A lot of these lending protocols have employed risk managers in the recent years. I think it's been more of like a come to the spotlight in the last year or so. For example, Gauntlet or Chaos Labs, whose job is to basically help manage risk for these lending protocols. Um, And so, yeah, it really begs the question if there is barely any curve liquidity on chain in DeFi, why are we allowing like 427 million units worth of curve to be pledged as collateral? Um, I, I don't really blame Mitch here for what he did to be very honest. Uh, I feel like I blame the lending protocols slightly more. Like if you if you let me take out a loan against an asset that I know is kind of illiquid and you allow me to take out like a hundred million dollars, to be honest, I think most of us would have done the same just to retain like the equity or like token ownership in our own protocol or startup. Um, it's the job of the lender to sort of price the liquidity of that collateral asset i think a similar like web 2 or like trad for example is the peloton founder right um at that peak Peloton was worth so so much and from what i've heard he took out a loan against his equity went to buy a private jet went to buy a yacht went to buy all of the nice houses <laughs> um there's a similar trend there um and then when Peloton just started going down and down and down go and sex kind of came here and said hey you have to repay your loan and then when you realize what all of his loans were deployed in like it's kind of hard to do and sell like a private jet on a whim. Um, So yeah, I think there's a few things that are also very interesting. Gauntlet or a few other risk managers for Aave have repeatedly sort of put up governance proposals to say, hey, I think we should like bring the loan value down to zero. Don't let Mitch pledge any more curve collateral. Don't let him borrow more against his curve collateral. And if I'm not wrong, every step of the way, the community or the DAO token holders have voted against managing risk for Mitch's position, which I think is a very interesting case. It's like the risk is obviously there. You know, um, everyone's just kind of mm. fingers crossed, hoping that it doesn't happen. And this brings me to my other point. Where do lending protocols go from here? Assuming that there's not much they can do about their current position. A first obvious next step would be rather than incorporating just pure oracles to use as a liquidation price You use sort of market depth oracles, either for on-chain or off-chain markets to see, hey, here is this amount of liquidity that's available. Here's how much you could you would get if you would sell X amount of this and you would sort of price interest rates or loan to values against that. So that brings us to another point. If, for example, there's an on-chain oracle, right? Um, and it shows, okay, every protocol or there's a liquidity pool where someone will be able to liquidate $30 million worth of curve, okay, like they'll take a 3% of not the end of the world. It wouldn't leave the protocol with bad debt, right? And so you're a lending protocol, you see that $30 million worth of liquidity through Oracle or something, and you're like, okay, I'm comfortable to lend X amount, right? But the problem is that multiple lending protocols are sharing that same liquidity, you know, like everyone will see as if they were acting in silo, But perhaps there will be five lending protocols out there with the exact same curve collateral, the exact same position, and all of them would need to liquidate through that same liquidity pool. Then there's also a question of basically, do I want to sort of be greedy? Do I just assume that other people won't want to maximize their profits, maximize like the LTV or sort of collateral that I'm able to pledge as curve because? At that point, you're kind of self-limiting, you know, um, and I think we've seen enough in DeFi that people don't really like self-limiting, even though we're all about like decentralization, managing risk, blah, 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 but people just don't like self-limiting um, and hmm. they want to maximize their business or profits. So it becomes like a bit of a contentious point there. And those are just like a few thoughts on where lending protocols go from here.
2: Hmm. Yeah, those no, those are really good points. I, I saw um, Michael Bentley, one of the Euler founders. Um, they're they're in the process of getting back on their feet. He was talking about how I think this is a real watershed moment for governance and lending protocols. Um, and you were touching on this a bit, like yeah. when Gauntlet, you know, the guys over there, they they've forgotten more about risk than the entire of the Aave DAO will ever know, right? And uh, the Aave DAO consistently votes votes against them. You know, that's that's a real problem. Um, and so I do like models like Euler's. Uh, and your, uh, uh, Ren, your idea about the liquidity depth um, oracles, like y- you can build more sophisticated, more complex oracles, but maybe the solution is actually to make it simpler. Like I always really liked Euler's model because, um, you know, risk parameters were defined on how much depth is there on Uniswap v3, and that's it. You know, I think that this could significantly change how people think about. Hmm. lending architecture um, because there is now this kind of universal recognition that we should not have allowed ourselves to get into this place. And how do we prevent it in the future?
0: So really, Andrew, really the question that you're bringing up, or I guess who who said this is Michael at Euler, I guess really yeah, Michael the question Bentley. you're bringing up is like, should lending protocols um, be governed by DAO governance or should you let, or is, or is there a different model that makes more sense? Like should lending protocol parameters be set by the market or by DAO members and something like Ave, you know, it sounds like they're voting against Gauntlet. I haven't followed that too closely, but like in Euler, the way I think it works is like, you know, the lending protocol parameters are just set by the market and like by market depth basically.
2: Yeah. And I think um, like, I think DAOs are good. I'm a pro-DAO guy. Like DAOs are, uh, we're, we're probably at the, the absolute trough of the bear market in terms of like DAO sentiment, right? Uh, I think they're really good for a lot of things, um, but maybe they shouldn't be good for determining risk parameters of lending protocols.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, just a few extra points there. I think two two things that I would like to see. The first is that since you need liquidity to liquidate a certain collateral if it goes bad, why don't DAOs or sorry, why don't lending protocols start as accepting, accepting LP tokens? as collateral tokens, because then you're kind of guaranteed that there is liquidity, or at least there there should be some way to like incentivize liquidity for collateral that you want to accept on your lending protocol. Uh, And I think another thing that I've been sort of mulling over is the role of these risk managers, right? These risk managers do have a significant, significant amount of, I'm not sure if power is the right word, since there is still like, DAO governance that can vote on their proposals, but they get to set a lot of parameters. You know, like they get to change like interest rate functions, LTV, like what markets are accepted. And uh, I don't have a good take on this on whether it's a good or bad thing that if in the future, a lot of these protocols, whether it's like a lending borrowing protocol or perhaps like a derivative protocol, it needs to bring a team of professional risk managers to manage all the risk. I mean, it definitely should not be left to DAOs. Um, I, I don't think DAO participants have a good idea of how to price liquid collateral. I, I'm not sure, like, even I do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just interesting to see where that future could potentially go, especially because the DAO members rejected all of Gauntlet's proposals to sort of reduce the risk. I just think there's like a bit of like a fundamental clash there, so to say. Hmm.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah, I guess if you think about the way it works in Like TradFi, it's not you're not just like there's not one one lend and borrow model that works for everyone, right? The bank is going to price the risk on a very individual basis, which I guess if you applied that to DeFi, that could work better. But you're also really fragmenting liquidity, so that's an interesting, yeah, interesting conversation to have. So, Andrew Ren, good chat, guys. Any anything else that we're missing here?
1: I would just say. One last thing still staying on the lending protocol i think there's been sort of a revival on the talks of how to price risk within lending protocols and people have come up with the idea of just letting lenders themselves decide the risk that they're willing to price rather than letting like a protocol decided for you and so what that kind of looks like is a central limit order book for lending you know you say i'm willing to take this as collateral against whatever i'm Willing to lend out. This is the max LTV that I'm willing to charge. I'm gonna decide my own like interest rate markets. And I think the parallel here okay. is that liquidity providers for lending and borrowing protocols may also have to get more sophisticated. Like this is a trend that we've seen indexes. Mm. Just inactive, unsophisticated LPs are completely getting wrecked. Like Every cur- every Uniswap pool is dominated by like ten LPs who make up more than eighty percent of the liquidity, and especially with Uniswap V four Uniswap X, chances are that becomes even more complicated. And so we're moving, we're really moving to a reliance or a dependence or sort of like a centralizing force on these sophisticated liquidity providers. And I sort of see the same thing happening for lending and borrowing protocols. Um, I think that's a whole other debate whether like having like large sophisticated liquidity providers and being dependent on them is a good or bad thing similar to like is a centralized builder, a good or bad thing for Ethereum. Um, but yeah, I think that's just a point that I wanted to make.
2: Yeah. I just, uh, throw it there that, um, there's already a really good lead for the, um, P ETH, ETH pool hacker. Um, and like I, I, have a lot of friends who work in these war rooms, and I know that they're some of the best analysts on the planet. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, even more of the money, uh, uh, you know, we start finding suspects, and a lot of it starts coming back. And so thinking about this hack and how it's going to be remembered is going to be really interesting because ultimately, this wasn't even was this a top ten hack? Was this a top twenty? When all said and done, like the amount stolen isn't going to be that much uh, when everything's been accounted for. But um, I think the impact it'll have and the way it's going to fundamentally change a lot of um, lending market architecture, um, it's, it's going to be important for reasons other than the dollar amounts. And that's pretty cool.
0: Mm, I like that take. Let's end there, guys. This is a great conversation. I uh, Hope you guys enjoyed this. Hope you guys got some value and uh, understand why this Curve Hack is so important. So Ren, Andrew, uh, thanks for the time, guys.
1: Likewise. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. Yeah. See you again. All. Bye, Andrew.